Hi, everybody. It's David from Election Profit Makers, the famous podcast you listen to. Uh, we are taking the week off. Long story short, self-care is real, but we didn't want to leave you with nothing. So we've decided to take our most recent Patreon episode and remove it from behind the paywall so that all may hear the stimulating conversation which lies therein. This is the first installment of something we're calling EPM Movie Club, and we will have future episodes of EPM Movie Club available exclusively to our Patreon sponsors, patreon.com slash electionprofitmakers, if you'd like to hear more discussions of movie magic from myself and Starly and John. Uh, we hope you're all doing well, and we will talk to you again soon. Enjoy. Welcome to Destruction Skyline, lovers. This is a special Patreon installment of EPM Movie Club, a Patreon exclusive for you, our Patreon supporters, who we very much appreciate. No last names this time because we're in casual mode for our buddies. That's you folks. I'm David, and I'm here with Starly. Hi, Starly. Hi. And also, I'm here with Johnny. Hey. Have there been various names you've called John Kimball throughout your lifelong friendship? N- no. Just John. David, you've always been known as David, but sometimes Dave. Well, the only person who calls me Dave is Mike. And I don't know how that started, but it's too late to stop now. And he's such an old friend. I I can't bring it up. And Starly's only been known as Starly. Yeah. I mean, I've had some nicknames. Starles. Starles got some mileage for a while. Starles Barkley. We could call you Starles Barkley (laughs) on the morning show. That's actually kind of tough. Yeah. Okay. Let's get to it. We're here, ladies and gentlemen, to talk about a very specific set of skylines. It's not just movie skylines, it's post-apocalyptic movie skylines, and we must begin by giving all honor and praise to our Patreon, Brian, who wrote us this message. Hi guys, the corrosion of conformity slash Klobuchar thread made me think of other apocalyptic band art, such as the cover to Megadeth's Peace Sells, But Who's Buying? Regardless of your opinion of Megadeth and Dave Mustaine, we must admit that their cover art and the consistency of their cover art is second only to that of Iron Maiden. Brian continues, and from there I started thinking about post-apocalyptic skylines. I wonder if there are enough fictional post-apocalyptic skylines to consider rating them. I would submit the skyline from the Sledgehammer season one finale as my favorite television post-apocalyptic skyline, both for its aesthetic appeal within TV sitcom budget constraints and for the emotional impact and surprise of that finale that still lives with me to this day. Wow. It's hard to say all that with my big bushy mustache. So for those of you who don't know, Sledgehammer, which I had completely forgotten about until Brian's message reminded me. The actor who played Sledgehammer was on Succession. Oh, he absolutely is. Starles, you're totally right. (laughs) So Sledgehammer was bizarre. It was a parody of the super tough kind of like Mike Hammer, private eye type of shows that that were thickening our airwaves back in the 80s and 90s. So it was a goof, you know, it was like a naked gun type of thing. And I had forgotten, but the season one finale ends with Sledgehammer detonating a nuclear bomb and blowing up the world. And there is a crazy post-apocalyptic skyline is the last image of the sitcom's first season. 
So obviously this sent the EPM movie club down an absolute rabbit hole reviewing post-apocalyptic skylines. And we are here today to discuss our findings. Yeah, and we widened it out from TV to film. You're right. He didn't he didn't limit it. I guess I limited it. Oh, it's so typical of me. You limited it by widening it. Oh, I like that. So I was very excited to do this because post-apop... I can't say post-apocalyptic with my mustache right now. It's looking so big. Are you parting it in the middle? I mean, do you really want to get into this? Yeah. I parted it in the middle and swept it aside so that I could eat cereal without getting a bunch of almond milk and honey in my mustache. Okay. Are you happy, John? Yeah. I've shared my shame with the world now. We cast a wide net. Our post-apocalyptic movies contain monster movies, disaster movies, alien invasion movies. Slash zombie. I think zombie is a separate category. So plus zombie. What was Fight Club? Oh, that's the fifth one. Dystopian future. I think Fight Club might just be present day, but fucked up. We all gravitated immediately to more the the movies where the skies, the skylines are affected. Yeah, totally. And I think that's appropriate. I don't think any of our (laughs) Patreons have a leg to stand on if they're going to criticize us for not focusing on unmolested skylines when it comes to post-apocalyptic movies. We are treating the skyline as a character for whom the audience is supposed to have concern and have stakes in whether or not the skyline is affected or not. What I was going to say before I started tripping over my own fucking mustache is that post-apocalyptic movies, and more specifically zombie movies, are my favorite genre of movie. So I was very excited to talk about this. I think I've already said this on this Patreon podcast but my dog is named after the road, which is a post-apocalyptic novel. These are your bona fides, as we say. I'm showing receipts. John, show us your receipts for the genre of post-apocalyptic <laughs> fiction. Prove yourself to be worthy of this episode of EPM Movie Club. You know, the only movie I ever walked out of was a post-apocalyptic movie. It was Godzilla in like 1998. That's ironic because I can't think of any other action-adventure movie where the skyline is more central to the iconography of the movie. Well, I guess King Kong, but Godzilla is all about just wrecking skylines and going buck on skylines, John. Maybe it's too real for you. Some people can't watch movies that put animals in danger, and maybe John can't watch movies that put skylines in danger. (laughs) But wait, John, I've also walked out of a Godzilla. Really? But I believe it was the version of Godzilla that was the next remake of that. (laughs) What the f- Guys, what is you guys' problem? We're united. We have a bond. That is awesome. And there were a lot of great movies in the late 90s, I thought. But this was horrible. I was living in New York. I think it was 20 minutes in. I was just like, this is bad. I also was in New York when I walked out of Godzilla. What theater were you in? What if you guys were the same person? Somewhere in Manhattan. I was in Brooklyn. Here are the movies that I watched exclusively for this episode, in addition to all the other hundreds of hours I have enjoyed in the company of other zombie and post-apocalyptic movies. I rewatched Oblivion starring Tom Cruise for the third time. Great underrated B sci-fi movie takes place on a scarred planet Earth, which has been invaded by aliens. There's a huge crater in the middle of the Pentagon. The Manhattan Bridge is covered with sand. I rewatched Escape from New York. I rewatched I Am Legend. I rewatched Dawn of the Dead. And I watched for the first time... Dark City. Those were my five. Here are, here are the ones that I watched. I watched Escape from New York for the first time. Mm-hmm. Never saw it. I watched Day After Tomorrow with Jake Gyllenhaal. I watched a movie from 1961 called The Day the Earth 
caught fire because I was trying to go back and see if if Skylines have always been a part of apocalyptic film. I watched Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Donna Sutherland remake. The one in the 70s. 1978 takes place in San Francisco. Very good San Francisco skyline shots, John. Is it destroyed or altered? No, but it's prominent. Like you see the Transamerica building a lot. It's bearing witness. I watched Cloverfield, the first one. I rewatched Children of Men. I watched snippets of a made-for-TV film with Jason Robards and John Lithgow that I think was in the 80s called The Day After, (laughs) which has a rare Kansas City skyline. I tried to see if Waterworld had a skyline. I thought about that one, too. That's such a great idea for a movie. I believe that's all the ones I watched. John? Yeah, I was on Predicted a lot this week. But I, I watched Cloverfield, which was incredible, and Day After Tomorrow, and then a bunch of snippets, in- including rewatching the end of uh, Fight Club again, which I love. Is that not the end? It's close to the end, right? I don't know. I've never watched Fight Club. David, you would love the final scene. Because of the pixies. John is referring very obliquely to when he and I choreographed and filmed a dance routine that we made up to Where Is My Mind by the Pixies in high school. That tape is lost to the ages. Once I started watching these, the role of the skyline in post-apocalyptic film is essential. It is part of the DNA of the post-apocalyptic film. It sets the scene for what was by showing the wear and tear, if you will. You don't know what's happening until you see the skyline affected. There's a part in Children of Men where he gets on the bus in in futuristic No Children Being Born London. It's like 2027 or something. And there's a TV playing um, for all the passengers to watch. And it's and it's a news report. And it's recapping what the world's been like since children weren't born. And it just shows the world's skylines. And that's like the shorthand to show you that you're in a post-apocalyptic world. Awesome. It's like all those footage on alien things when it's like, now the flying saucer is over the pyramids. Now the flying saucer is over the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. The best example of that, Starly, that you remind me of, and this is going to bring it to a micro skyline, in one of the Transformers movies, which I saw in a theater in Poughkeepsie, New York, at the Poughkeepsie Galleria, the greatest movie theater in the world, they had a scene where a bunch of bad robots called Decepticons who had been slumbering for years beneath the Earth's surface, I think, suddenly broke through to wreak havoc upon our innocent populace. And so they have that thing where they go skyline by skyline by skyline. Now a bad robot is looming over Big Ben. And now a bad robot is looming over the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And then they had a robot bust out of Bannerman Castle on Bannerman Island, which is on the Hudson River on the Metro North Line between Grand Central Station and Beacon, New York, where I used to live. Wow. It's an old private munition building that looks like a castle. It was styled as a castle. It's extremely architecturally interesting, but also unstable. It's constantly collapsing. You can't go there unless you're part of a tour and wearing a hard hat. It's a very weird thing that sneaks up on you if you're not expecting it on the Hudson River On when you're on the Metro North. And I was like, watching this movie in Poughkeepsie, it was like, they have a fucking Decepticon hanging out under Bannerman's Island? That's crazy. It would be like, John, it would be like if it came out of the old well on the UNC's campus. And I actually thought... Were these guys savvy enough that they have micro-targeted different theater chains regionally to have a Decepticon come out of a local landmark? But it turns out 
It wasn't. It's in every print of the movie. But it's a great idea. I know, right? Incredible moment of a micro skyline in an international hit made by the visionary director, Michael Bay. I was thinking that while watching these movies. That's why I was so excited when I saw the Kansas City skyline for a second in that in the day after. The big cities really get so much attention in these movies because they have the most recognizable landmarks. So when they go down, you're you're affected. Let me ask you guys an overall skyline question. When it comes to post-apocalyptic movies, what is scarier to you? Skylines being destroyed or skylines just being empty? Because this is what like I Am Legend slash Omega Man, it's that model where it's the world as you know it, but everybody's gone. Well, it's there's also a question, like in the New York ones, the buildings getting destroyed affect you differently because of 9-11. Right, yeah. yeah. I read The Day After Tomorrow, it was shot in 2004, The Day After Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's a double coast skyline movie because you get the L.A. skyline and you get the New York skyline. In L.A., the buildings... The hurricanes tear them to pieces and you see a janitor, he's cleaning the hallway and then he, he opens the door and you see him just looking out into the abyss. Mm. Mm. But in New York, the tidal waves come and they hit the building, but none of the buildings fall. And so when the Chrysler building, when it gets affected, you see the ice climb up it and then you see the point of it. It all turns into an ice sculpture. But he said, it's, what's his name? Roland Emmerich. Roland Emmerich, Yeah. He said that he was worried about playing that movie to audiences three years after 9-11 because he was worried they were going to be upset. But they cheered. They actually ended up cheering. They cheered when the buildings froze? Yeah. And I was like, maybe they're cheering because they don't fall. Then I watched Cloverfield and it's like that movie's it's so triggering of 9-11. And that was only seven years later. So Cloverfield came out in 2008, right? Yeah. I'm going to say two things about that. The first is. The Cloverfield is also very 9-11 reminiscent because it's a found footage movie and so much of our mm. imagery of 9-11 is found footage from amateur videographers, at least when the towers are impacted by planes. The second thing I will say, the one specific time I remember really having 9-11 shoved in my face in a way that was really unpleasant, it was not at all intentional. <laughs> and maybe it was because it was the first movie I saw in the movie theaters after 9-11. The movie was Zoolander starring Ben Stiller as a male supermodel. And we went to go see that shortly after 9-11, living in Brooklyn. And there was one scene where everyone just starts shooting each other with gasoline at the gas pump and dousing themselves in gasoline in an ironic, erotic fashion. And I was just like, I'm not into thinking about people burning. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing about Zoolander, and this got a fair amount of attention, was the final shot of Zoolander is a shot of Manhattan where he has established his modeling academy. And there was a wide pullout to capture the entire Manhattan skyline, including the Twin Towers, because they shot it before 9-11. The studio decided to cut the zoom out early so that you wouldn't see the towers. And it's really awkward. Like you can tell based on the rhythm that it's you're supposed to get a true wide shot of Manhattan. And they truncated it. And that was just a fucking bummer. Everything else doesn't bother me. You can blow up any building you want. I know it's not real. So did Zoolander take them out? Because it wasn't like, it's not the Twin Towers that we're mad at. Did they take it out because they didn't want to make people sad watching this comedy at the end? Yeah, they didn't want to leave it on a bummer. But it seems kind of unfair to erase the Twin Tower. They've already been erased. They've been taken down. Just like our Confederate heroes trying to erase this history. Zoolander is the one who started it. Don't get mad at Antifa and Black Lives Matter. This started with Zoolander (laughs) trying to erase our history. So you didn't find Cloverfield 
triggering. I, I found it incredibly triggering. I mean, the building's falling, obviously. Tell people what Cloverfield is, John, in case they haven't seen it. It's just a post-apocalyptic um, monster movie. A monster takes over New York City and the military is fighting the monster. And it's just a bunch of scenes of these people that were at a party and they have their video cameras and, and it's just them trying to escape the city. Uh, and rescue one of their friends who's who's trapped as well. I found it very triggering. That must have been intentional. It's what's weird about Cloverfield is out of all the movies I watched, it's the only one that's not political in any way. Day After Tomorrow, for as dumb as that movie is, it's about climate change. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is like, don't be a pod person. Everything says something. Cloverfield says nothing. It's just a monster coming through New York and... There's so much, so much that's cool about it, but the plot is so dumb that these kids are trying to get their friend. And actually, after being in quarantine as a single person, I've had so many thoughts about couples during this time. All he's trying to do is save his this girl that he likes. And he's risking everyone else's life. No one else matters except for this one girl. And I'm just like, this is exactly what we have to be fighting against. It's not just about our little empires and our little units. We have to care about everybody. This is the wrong way to be going about... A disaster. He's endangering other people for his own selfish reasons. Is that what you mean? I mean, it's so ridiculous that she's like this perfect girl that he's got to save. They represent the platonic ideal. This cute guy, this cute girl. Yeah. He's a VP of like a finance company. She lives in some horrible high like condo high rise. And so everyone, everyone's enlisted to save this platonic ideal, like the status quo, what we think is of, of a perfect life. But Starley, maybe that proves there is a subtext to Cloverfield. Maybe it's a satire. Maybe it's about look how blinkered everyone is that they will risk their own life and die so that they can perpetuate these dopey idealized versions of what is the best about America, a finance guy who wants to kiss and cuddle with a hot babe. I would love to believe that. Oh, it's John. John? Oh, I'm here. Okay. Sorry. That was a real Cloverfield moment. Our found footage went dark. We thought the monster had gotten John Kimball. I now got to walk across the country in snowshoes to go save my buddy. The special effects are cool, though. I found that the better the effects, the dumber the plot. So when it comes to apocalyptic skyline porn, tell me both of you guys, let's do a one through five star rating. What would each of you give day after tomorrow? One through five? I'd give it a five. Five. Whoa, okay. I love how the the water, the surge that comes in, that storm surge comes in and overtakes the Statue of Liberty. And then how you can see the water cascading through lower Manhattan, through just through the canyons of buildings, seeing the, the water coming through. I think it, it's it's pretty terrifying and, and it looks realistic to me. And the role the skyscraper plays is essential to the movie. Because Day After Tomorrow is actually so weak on their character development, the skylines take on are the characters. When you see the skylines affected, you feel more than when you see the people affected. And one of the when one of the big uplifting moments in Day After Tomorrow is when the helicopters are coming in at the end and they're flying over the harbor towards the skyline. It's just like it's awesome. Should we rate Cloverfield sky? Lines? I thought that the the monster knocking the Statue of Liberty in Cloverfield, where it got just blasted into, I don't know, were they on the Upper East Side or something? And it lands in the street there. That was pretty cool. And it wasn't, you know, people think the Statue of Liberty is huge, but it's not that big. And it looked like it was the proper size in the street. Starley, do you want to talk about Escape from New York? Yeah. I mean, I... I just I didn't know that's what Escape from New York was. 
I didn't even fully know the premise of it. The premise is in the title. I didn't know that it was because it was a prison. Oh, that they had turned all of Manhattan into a prison. Yeah. In fact, if you were to actually line up the movies, Escape from New York could come after Cloverfield because at, Clo- at the end of Cloverfield, they give Manhattan to the monster. They just nuke it and say, we don't have a New York anymore. And so then it could go into um, Escape from New York. Gentrification, another subtext for Cloverfield. Boom. It really doesn't. He's get- running hot with these subtexts. Escape from New York. I think I was scared of it when I was little, so I didn't see it. Yeah, right. It seemed really dark. It is really dark. I have to say, out of all the movies I watched, I enjoyed it the least. I did not like living in its world. Really? Mm-mm. Because he's so upsetting. Snake. Snake. Snake Pliskin. And also, the crazy thing about Escape from New York is that it's not shot in New York. It's John, so... guess, where they, guess where they shot Escape from New York? When, when was it filmed? It was filmed in, what, eight the early 80s? And it's a bombed out Manhattan that is now a prison colony. They could not afford to shut down Manhattan, so they went to another city that looked like what a bombed out shitty Manhattan would look like. East St. Louis. Oh, wow. Yeah, East St. Louis doubled for a crummy Manhattan. But it really didn't double. When you watch a movie that takes place in New York, it takes place in New York. There is not a single moment in Escape from New York where you think you're in New York. Harry Dean Stanton lives in the New York Public Library and it's just, it's not the New York Public Library. And the Statue of Liberty was destroyed in that too? No, because there's not, there's the violence in Escape from New York does not reach the level where anyone is knocking over a Statue of Liberty. Because I'm searching Escape from New York and I'm seeing a picture of the Statue of Liberty lying in the street, but maybe it's just part of the art. Right. That's right. It's a famous poster. You're right. And the Statue of Liberty is definitely too large in this picture. Did you read the skyline, how they made the skyline stuff, David? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Oh, my God. The part I like about Escape from New York is that we have the New York City skyline featured in multiple media within the single film. There was no way that they could convince everyone in Manhattan to turn their light bulbs off. So in order to represent the entire island of Manhattan with no electricity at night, they have a matte, you know, a huge matte painting, good old fashioned cinematic matte painting. And you have have this amazing shot from under the Manhattan Bridge looking at Manhattan and it's completely blank. The next thing they have is my favorite thing, which is physical models of skyscrapers as the camera flies over it and you are in the glider with Snake Plissken. He flies a glider into Manhattan, lands on top of the World Trade, one of the World Trade Center towers. That's how he enters the prison. But the dopest thing, John, is because this is the early 80s vision of the future. So any computer graphic or command center or dashboard is just going to be looking so freaking awesome. They have him flying and and navigating by kind of vector models, you know, line art vector models of the skyscrapers. But they didn't have the budget, I guess, to actually create computer models of it. So what they did was they took like fluorescent tape and taped off the edges of their actual models they had built of the miniature skyscrapers (laughs) and then shot it under black light. So it looks wow. like the illuminated graphics of an LED screen. It looks yeah. so cool. Incredible. And then there's another skyline thing, too. There's a part where they're, um, the helicopters are coming down to the prisoners who are in Central Park. It could not look less like Central Park. It's just a field in St. Louis or in California. They actually shot that part. And you see the only way you know it might be Central Park is there's a skyline surrounding the park. That is a painting 
Done by James Cameron. Oh, right. He was one of the mad artists. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I think I like Escape from New York is it does have this dreamy sensation of dislocation because you're in New York, but the footage isn't from New York. And I don't even think you have to be a New York resident to pick up on this weird dream. You know, when you're in a dream and it's like, I think I was in Chicago, but it was also... Maine, you know, that kind of like weird displacement. There's so much of that in Escape from New York, especially because the skyline is represented across all these different media. It's not consistent. So you just have what I think of as my childhood. Oh, my God. I just made the most amazing. I just I just thought of something. What I was going to say was. Escape from New York, I think, seeing posters and probably trailers and stuff when I was a kid, I think I imagine, and probably because of the news, because, you know, New York City wasn't a rough spot back then. It's like, that's what I thought the city was. This weird, dark, kind of undulating, sinister environment. And here's how I know it had a big impact on me. Because when I was a kid and we would go to visit my my grandpa in Wisconsin, I would get so bored that I had a I would take his tape recorder and record it. He was a doctor. He had all these cassettes, probably like pain management and arthritic patients of lecture on tape. And he would let me tape over them. And, you know, I'd record like little radio shows and plays and like little skits and dramas that I wrote. And I used to write and perform stories about life in the big city. <laughs> and it was all like guys with boom boxes and hot babes with blonde hair. And then they get mugged by gang members with switchblades and stuff. That's probably all from Escape from New York. Even though there's not a single second where it actually looks like New York, it does capture some sort of essence that New York has. I think the reason I had such a hard time being with him was it reminded me of when I've been in New York and just been like, what's the point of this? Like August, I'm broke and I have nowhere to go. I can't leave the city. It's not about the danger of New York. It's about the desolation of New York. Yeah. And again, that's part of the dream feeling is that the movie is actually kind of quiet and slow. It's really just kind of desolate and kind of a bummer. And that's definitely how big cities can feel. It's really about being in Brooklyn when all your rich friends have gone off to their (laughs) weekend. They've escaped from New York, right? It's probably like coronavirus stuff. Yeah. That's what it is. Watching it during Corona is the added layer of abandonment that we've all felt. Can I tell you this other real quick trivia that I, you know, when the woman dies, um, Harry Dean Stanton's girlfriend, she stays to protect him. And you see Duke pull up and, and then you just see her like with a gun, but you don't see anything happen to her. And then the next shot you see is her dead body with blood all over it. And the reason that shot is in there is because a young J.J. Abrams, like a teenage J.J. Abrams. I think his dad worked for this studio or something. And he said he watched an early cut as a teenager and said, you don't know for sure that she died. So you should put a scene in where she dies. So that was shot on John Carpenter's driveway, her laying on his driveway full of blood. Like, so the same way that Escape from New York has entered a young David Reese, it also entered a young J.J. Abrams. And I feel like it must have influenced Cloverfield. Skyline rating, because of the variety of skylines, I'm going to give it, I give it a four, four stars, four desolate stars from the back of my subconscious. This is not a destroyed skyline. This is just an empty, desolate skyline. And to me, that's much more affecting 
Maybe the skyline functions as sort of the Greek chorus, because the skyline is a reflection of the values that have led society to the point at which we find ourselves when the movie begins. The skyline kind of represents the norms of the society that is about to come under siege, whether it's by aliens in Independence Day and Cloverfield, or whether it's by natural disasters in The Day After Tomorrow, or whether it's by zombies like literally climbing on top of each other to breach the walls like in World War Z, the Brad Pitt zombie movie, which is actually a pretty dope zombie movie. The skylines are proxies for the norms of the society. And maybe that's why it's creepier for me to see empty skylines as opposed to destroyed skylines, because if we think of the skyline as a visual proxy for society, to see them as mere shells and husks and emptied out is creepier. In fact, it turns the skyline into the functional equivalent of a zombie, which is an animated body that is not alive. And I've always loved zombie movies for that reason. We also like know in our real lives what it is to see buildings fall. Now we really know what it's like to see after post 9-11, we, you know, the building that fell that defined our lifetimes. Uh huh. Is it harder for us to conceptualize an empty world? Right. I, I think it's, I mean, maybe that's what's so fuck. I mean, maybe that's why everyone's having a hard time dealing with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Because the way to fix it is just to empty everything out, to stay at home and to leave the buildings empty. Right. To not feed the buildings with hosts for COVID. And that's why in those early days of coronavirus and I would go biking at night, it was uncanny and it did feel like a post-apocalyptic movie because there weren't many people around. Mm -hmm. And obviously that can be a really fun feeling. Like who doesn't love breaking into an empty old warehouse and reading all the weird graffiti and looking at the piles of cans and dead dolls that have been left by teenagers getting high? I mean, I used to do so much warehouse exploration when I lived in the Hudson River Valley because it was a burnt out industrial center. Go down to the old paperclip factory. Go down to the old brick factory. I loved it. But when it, when it's happening in the middle of a thriving city, it is it is uncanny. That's why I love the opening of 28 Days Later when the hero wakes up from his coma and goes out into London and you have that iconic shot of London just completely emptied out. To me, that's so much more affecting than, oh my God, a laser cannon from Pluto blew up the Parliament building. I don't give two shits about that, man. Well, because the buildings are also just symbols. The building, we know what they look like. We know what they represent, but we don't have our life. Our lives are not, for the most, almost all of us, our lives are not spent going to these buildings. You mostly experience these buildings as iconography in movies. I mean, the first time the alien blows up the Capitol or the White House in Independence Day, I remember being in the theater. I think I went to that on opening night in Chapel Hill, John. At the at not at the Rams Head, but at Timberline. And when they blew up the White House or whatever it was, people were kind of going nuts. I mean, that was pretty audacious. But now it feels so familiar. Like the poor Statue of Liberty is getting knocked around more than these dead cut up women in Hannibal and True Detective. She's just another woman who has to be brutalized. So, you know, there's a real bad guy at foot. And she also came down before we took the Confederate generals down. For years, we were knocking her down. Now we have a million now we have a million little clover fields springing up all over the country and and we love it. At EPM Movie Club supports making your own little DIY Antifa clover field, <laughs> knocking over a statue <laughs> and then looking at it and being like, "Oh, that thing actually wasn't that big." I want to go through a couple of these lists, suggestions. Someone said Tatooine. 
I mean, that's kind of a cool city. That's not post-apocalyptic. I mean, I do love to see a skyline in the middle of a desert, not in Dubai or whatever, because it's gross. But in a movie like Mad Max Fury Road, that little whole compound they have going with the cliffs and the waterfalls, amazing. LA and Blade Runner, someone suggests. Pretty good vision of the future. Not post-apocalyptic, but pretty amazing. And the remake of Blade Runner has an impossibly dense urban skyline that's pretty incredible too. Logan's Run. I rewatched Logan's Run within the past year. Guys, if Escape from New York imprinted on me as what cities are like, Logan's Run imprinted on me as what cities are going to be like, and little Davey was pretty stoked to get to the future because the style in Logan's Run Ooh, you got an indoor monorail. Little David's getting excited. With <laughs> little smooth. Everything. Everyone's wearing like pastel togas and stuff and ferns. Ooh, you know the future is going to have so many fucking ferns. Ooh, and misters. Logan's Run is great. Akira. Have you guys seen Akira, the classic Japanese anime? No. Oh, my gosh. John, I know you have to see Akira and check out Neo Tokyo. It's pretty insane. Can I watch it tonight? You should watch it tonight. And I think if memory serves, <laughs> I, I saw that, John, with our friend Matt B at our former English teacher, Mr. Stone's Theater, when it premiered in America in the 90s. I think it was the first Japanese anime I'd ever seen. It goes pretty hard towards the end. I'll just say that. Something pretty normal happens at the end of Akira. We had plenty of recommendations for Day After Tomorrow, which you guys did. Someone recommended the movie Hell Comes to Frogtown, which I had never heard of, which is kind of a, the type of movie that I would have stayed up to watch late on scrambled HBO, uh, my parents' house, because it is a satire of Mad Max, and there's a lot of scantily clad women in bikinis and chains. It's that kind of thing. Cheeky fun. Have either of you seen 2012? Someone recommended 2012. That's another disaster movie. I have to say I'm not interested in disaster movies. Only if the disaster is zombies. Speaking of when I rewatched Dawn of the Dead last night, the 2004 remake, that said outside Milwaukee, you get some brief shots of the Milwaukee skyline in flames, but of course that movie is more about living in a mall. My favorite type of zombie movie is when a group of random people come under threat by The Walking Dead and must band together and think very practically about how to survive. Frankly, that's why I thought the coronavirus would be more enjoyable than it's turned out to be. But you know what it made me think of, John? Getting back to deep implanted memories that come from movies. I think a movie that you and I watched as young people that was very influential on our entire generation is structurally and essentially a zombie movie. It came to me when I was watching Dawn of the Dead last night, watching everyone hanging out in this huge abandoned shopping mall, trying to figure out what their jobs would be and how they would escape the threat that was imposed on them from the outside. It is a zombie movie disguised as a teen comedy. Can you think of what movie that might be? I, I have no idea. When I had this realization, my third eye was so open. The Breakfast Club. Oh, Interesting. Oh, wow. The Breakfast Club is a zombie movie. They are confined in a 
proto-public space that they have barricaded themselves in, essentially. It's a disparate group of people who all have to get along and band together against the outside threat. The parents are the zombies. And just like in zombie movies, these characters have to maintain their humanity and forge alliances with each other in order to push back against the walking dead. And parents are zombies because they all grew up, came, got jobs, got married, did all the, they lost everything that made them. That They lost their souls, Starly. They lost their souls. They are moving, but they are not alive. Detention of the dead. Oh, Long John Silver coming through. In a zombie movie, someone has to get bitten. Someone is infected. Yes. Molly Ringwald is infected because she buys into it, at least initially. We... Th- we think she, we think she's infected, but then my man Judd Nelson sucks the poison out of her and saves her. Coolest guy, biggest fashion influence of my life. <laughs> Just call him Mr. Layers. It's like, yeah, I got on this blue jean jacket, and I'm gonna throw this duster over this blue jean jacket, and under the blue jean jacket, I'm rocking two flannels and a t-shirt, and probably a sleeveless under that. That was David right there. Could see him coming a mile away. Just waves upon waves of fabric, letting everyone know David Reese is walking down these high school halls. You needed those layers to protect you from anything anything getting in. I did. They're still there. They're just all in my mind and my personality. Don't worry. The layers are still there. Okay. I want to mention a movie that I watched for the first time yesterday. I don't recommend watching it while you're doing other work on your laptop because you will get lost. But it was quite interesting. It's called Dark City. It came out a year or two before The Matrix, and it actually anticipates a lot of the themes and motifs and aesthetics of The Matrix. It was obviously not the cultural powerhouse that The Matrix was. Maybe because it's literally so dark, you can't tell what the fuck you're looking at half the time. But it does have some cool sci-fi Philip K. Dick kind of stuff, which usually leaves me a little cold. But this stuff, there's some good ideas about memory and whatnot. But, John, it has bad guys who can spontaneously create and manipulate skylines. They can build buildings spontaneously. There's one scene, this is a spoiler alert, there's one scene where a guy kills a bad guy by having two skyscrapers smush him. Wow. By a skyscraper moving laterally into the edge of another skyscraper and crushing him. Oh, and then the final shot, the the twist at the end of Dark City is pretty incredible in terms of skyline iconography. I'm going to spoil it. So if you don't want to hear this, fast forward 30 seconds. The big reveal is that this entire world is just a huge metropolitan skyline that is floating through space on a flat disk. Whoa. So it's a planet that just is nothing but a skyline. They've been conditioned to think that they are living in an entire world. But then when they try to remember what the beach was like, they're like, I can't remember the beach. And also, I can't remember if I've ever been awake during the daytime. And then they put, you know, it's like the Matrix. You're living in a false, you know, the bad guys have made you believe that there's all this stuff when really you're just a little pod and you really haven't done that much interesting stuff in your life. Okay. It's like going to your high school reunion, realizing that. (laughs) When you went to your high school reunion, that's how you felt? Yeah, of course. You felt other people in your high school did more than you had done? Yeah. Or they seemed happy. To me, that's doing more. It means they did the work or they were blessed from birth. Someone had mentioned AI, artificial intelligence. Steven Spielberg's much maligned and underrated, the, one of the creepiest movies ever made. And it's true that that ending of that movie has one of the greatest jump cuts of all time. I think 45,000 years pass in one cut, baller move. And then you see a skyline that is submerged completely underwater. 
incredible. Love it. Now I want to talk about the elephant in the room. There is a movie that people recommended. It is a post-apocalyptic movie that contains skylines. The name of the movie is Skyline. And it is part of what I believe is a trilogy of the somewhat unsuccessful Skyline cinematic universe. There were multiple movies made. Skyline, I remember the posters for because they were all over the subways during an era when my friends and I lived in New York and had a movie club where we would go see huge blockbuster movies and then go out to eat afterwards and discuss them. That movie club is why I saw Avatar in IMAX 3D sitting directly in front of Mario Batali. So we saw a lot of amazing movies as part of movie club. And I remember debating whether we were going to see Skyline because the poster is two guys looking at a skyline as it is zapped by a UFO. Ladies and gentlemen, it grieves me to say that Skyline is not actually a good movie. I did send John and Starley some little clips that I filmed while I watched it one morning. It is almost so bad it's good, but really it's so bad it's not good. If you know those types of movies, (laughs) like it's so bad, it's actually kind of not good. That's what Skyline is. So I can't really recommend it, although I did laugh a couple times because one character's name is Terry and another character's name is Jerry. So there's one point where I think the same actor has to go, we're not going to do that, Terry. Jerry! Like (laughs) that was an internal rhyme in the dialogue, which is kind of incredible. Did they do Terry and Jerry because it was supposed to be a joke or they just, it was that lazy of a movie that they're like, we're not, we're not going to come up with a different sound of a name. We're just going to add a different letter to the beginning of the name. I think his name was Jared. It was Jared, but sometimes they called him Jerry. And maybe it was a miffed read or something or bad ADR (laughs) because I went back and listened to it. And I was like, I thought this guy's name was Jared. Why is he saying Jerry? This movie was basically directed and I think created by two brothers who came up in the visual effects. So it was basically like a visual effects reel for them um, with pulsating blue glowing aliens and all that kind of stuff. And they were probably like, we have to spend every dime we have on these special effects and we can't ask these actors to make too many different sounds with their mouths. I think it was something like that. Like we're cutting every corner except for these visual effects. The characters are the part that you can tell with most of these movies that are just like, I can't believe we have to have characters. I know, exactly. Talk about being Skyline obsessed. Like the guy who made Day After Tomorrow, his whole life, all he wanted to do was put ice in the Chrysler building. He wanted to be like Andy Warhol and shoot Empire and just make an 18-hour movie of ice slowly creeping up the sides of the Empire State Building. But then because it's so expensive to do that, so much of these movies isn't the the effects. It's really a shame they don't care about characters because most of these movies are spent with characters in very dumb plot lines. So Skyline, I'm going to give it one out of five stars. And then I want to recommend one final movie. And to me, I think this movie captures the kind of escape from New York type of urban desolation that we've been talking about. This movie is extremely dreamlike and it does have incredible moments of phantasms interacting with an urban environment. And that movie is a Japanese anime called Angel's Egg. Have either of you ever seen Angel's Egg? No. Really good. Really, really out there. Very dreamlike. Should we do another EPM movie club at some point? Pick a theme and watch some movies? Yeah. Yeah. It was very fun to watch these movies focusing on the skylines because it 
It was so exciting whenever they appeared. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have I haven't been able to watch movies the entire time during quarantine. And I really have not been able to watch the past because it felt like it felt especially weird to watch the past when time wasn't happening. But through the hack of Skylines, I you're feel on a mission now. you're watching for Skylines. Mm hmm. My friend was just talking about how she was, she's only able to talk to her mother about her mother's feelings when her mother's playing Rummy Cube because her mom's so distracted by the game that right. she suddenly yeah, starts. She can open up. Yeah. And I feel like that's what it was with Skylines for me, where I was able to like suddenly enjoy movies, watch movies, think about things that I haven't been able to during quarantine. We got to thank Patreon Brian for this prompt post apocalyptic Skylines. This has not been the definitive podcast conversation about post-apocalyptic skylines, but I bet it is one of the top 20 podcast conversations about post-apocalyptic skylines. And we thank all you guys for all of your amazing skyline recommendations. We really did like doing EPM Movie Club, and I think maybe we should do it again. I like watching movies, although sometimes I wonder if I've wasted my life watching so many movies. But that's a topic for another episode. I would like you guys to watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers because it scared me. I'll watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers if you guys watch Angel's Egg because it's normal. Okay. This is David saying goodbye. Starly and John, always a pleasure. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.